Dry Land is a production of the Z Theatre Company and Adam Frost Venrick with original music by Mr. Frost Venrick. Today's episode is entitled Mango. Before I got on the plane to Seattle, I made a good packing list. You know, SPF 50, swim trunks, sunglasses, things like that. And then we landed. I may have made a terrible mistake. As it turns out, Seattle, Washington, while on the western coast of the United States, is maybe not the sunny, funny, tropical paradise I may have thought it was. Next time I'll try Alaska. But even though it was snowy and very cold, I still found myself fitting in extraordinarily well there. It was nice just to get away from the regular rigmarole for a change. Rigmarole is a word that Jess's dad, Dan, taught me. I've liked meeting Jess's family. I mean, I don't know them very well, but Dan is technically my landlord, which I think is maybe one of the most special relationships of all. And her mom, Janice, is doing really well, too. Her surgery was scheduled for a few days after I got there, and she actually seemed to be taking it in her stride, which I thought was really, really brave. And so was Dan. In fact, if there's one thing that I think can be said of Dan... It's that he cracked a lot of jokes for a guy whose wife had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Neither of them really talk about it. That's what they call it. It. So that's what I start calling it when I'm in their presence. It being cancer. I eat approximately one meal with Jess's family every day, usually breakfast, which I help to cook before I go out and work for one of three different food delivery apps I currently have on my phone. Jess and Janice both sleep in, which I guess makes sense, but I usually find Dan sitting up when I get to the house. Often he's in the kitchen just having coffee. And by the fourth day of me stopping to make breakfast, Dan would just leave the door open for me. We would sit in the kitchen, I'd cook, usually it'd be the same thing, bacon and eggs, and Dan would sometimes say, tell me again how you and Jessica met. So I'd tell him about our two shared classes, and Dan would just nod and say, You know she won a scholarship for poetry. I've never read any of Jess's poetry. Jess would usually come down after that, and she wouldn't say much, just ask if I needed help cooking. She'd talk with Dan, try and coordinate the shopping list. Janice would come downstairs last. Tomorrow, she'd usually announce to herself, I am going to get up and use that treadmill. Honestly, it's such a shame that it just sits there and gets dusty. She says that every day, but she hasn't yet. She's a very chipper woman, though, so much that you'd forget that she was actually sick with it. She had her hair cut short, but I don't know if that was because of the cancer or just like a mom thing. Either way, according to Jess, she managed to look like soccer mom Mia Farrow every day. I'm still trying to figure out if that's a good thing or not. But anyway, it's me and Jess and Dan and Janice. And me in my new apartment. And me in my delivery job. The delivery job, by the way, is difficult, of course, because I don't have a driver's license and I'm not old enough to rent a car anyway, so I've ended up having to borrow Janice's Vespa to make my deliveries. Jess says that every time she sees me pull up to the house driving her mom's Vespa, smelling like chicken cacciatore, and wearing my scarf and sweater, that I look like a Fellini mistake. 
I will say it's unfortunate. Jess and I don't hang out as much as I'd hoped we would. We had dinner once at my apartment the night after I moved in. She showed up, I cooked, we drank gin and tonic, but we didn't talk much. After dinner, we did attempt small talk, whether or not I should pursue an anthropology major, what classes we were looking forward to in the next semester, how work was going, and I said, You know, I saw the weirdest thing when I was out driving today. Yeah, said Jess, what was that? I was out near Cary Park yesterday morning, and there was a circus troupe coming through, of all things. A circus troupe? Yeah, a circus troupe. You know, a couple cars from the circus. And one of them was a clown car, and at one point, the clown car had to stop fast, and the car behind it bumped into it, and one of the clowns got out to yell at the driver, but it turns out, the driver behind him was a lion tamer, and the lion got loose and mauled the clown, and then it climbed into the clown car, and the other clowns in the clown car started swerving around and screaming, and then they drove into an open manhole. <laughs> clowns are so funny. And Jess said, I can't stop thinking about getting it. What? I can't stop thinking about my mom, Jess said. You know, I'm so scared that I'm going to get sick, too. I nodded. A valid fear. Cancer can be hereditary. And I saw that Jess was actually starting to tear up, so I said, but you pr probably won't get it. And I, either way, Jess, you're young. You're, you know, you're not even half your mom's age. I know, said Jess. But that doesn't matter. I just, I can't stop thinking about it. I... Do you know I've spent probably an hour a day in the bathroom the last few days, like, not doing anything, not taking a shit, just looking at myself in the mirror, like, oh, what's that? What's this now? Is it a mole? Is it not a mole? Is it a raised mole? Whenever I think of raised moles, I think of really large molehills. But even I knew better than to tell Jess that. Look, I said... I'm not the best at comforting people. I read a book once on oncology back where I used to live, but I'm not an expert, and I'm not the right person to ask. But but I, I bet your mom is going to be okay. You know, they caught it early, that's an important part, and they're going to take care of it. And I think you'll be okay too, Jess, if something does happen. She nodded. Thanks, Will. God, you know, I, I I guess I shouldn't panic. I mean, hey, everybody dies. Everybody poops and everybody dies. Some people at the same time. Yeah, I said. That must be terrible, death. She laughed a little and said, well, yeah. Will, haven't you ever been afraid to die? Yeah, I said. I, I guess. I mean, th there was this one time where I thought that, you know, someone might kill me, but, but I mean, I'm not gonna, like, die, 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 as opposed to just regular death? Will, you do know we all die, right? What? Yeah, she said. I was flummoxed by this. Neither Dr. Ballard nor anyone else at the facility had ever warned me that I would one day die. I had assumed that, since they had done science to me, they had made me immortal. Me? 
You, said Jess, and me, and everyone, everyone we know is going to die one day, whether we get murdered or get cancer or some of us die in our sleep or get mauled to death like those circus clowns. We will. Yeah, she said. Them's the breaks, Will. That's how it goes. Oh, shit. And I said, so, but, but like, how, how old are most people when they die? Probably pretty old, right? I don't know. You can die at any time, Jess said. But I guess best case scenario, I think average American lifespan is like 80, I guess? 80? I asked. So at age 20, if I'm lucky, I'm already a quarter. If that, said Jess. Look, do you mind if we talk about something else? I was hoping you'd cheer me up and this is really bumming me out. And I said, sure, because I wanted to stop talking about it, too. But deep down, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was 20 years old, and I had lost almost all of those 20 years. Just the first quarter of my life had just not existed. Poof. And the rest of it was finite. And so after Jess left, I laid down on my bed, and I just couldn't sleep. Because that entire night, for the first time, I felt real genuine anger, like something had been taken from me, like something was being taken from me right now, even as I lay there with my head on that pillow. And that was time I would never get back. That was experience that I would never have. And it was a future that was smaller than it had ever felt. So I didn't sleep. I stayed up all night thinking about something that Dr. Ballard had told me. You are the only one in Ohio. The only one like me in Ohio. She had told me this during our session right before break. And when I had asked her to elaborate, I could tell she didn't want to. But she did tell me a bit. It turns out I'm not a very unique fish monster. I was born in 1999. A few weeks after my birth, my mother had signed me up for the experiment. There were tests done in several major cities. Columbus, Los Angeles, Chicago, Indianapolis. Dr. Ballard told me that in a few weeks there's a conference being held in Austin, Texas, a shareholder meeting where some of the rehumanized members of the project were slated to make an appearance. They've been back longer than you, she said. One of them was turned back into a human at age eight. She's had more time to reacclimate. And then she asked, But do you want to come, Will, to the conference? I wasn't going to invite you because I thought it might be too stimulating. And I said, I'll think about it. Though, in truth, I was sure I didn't want to. To go to that conference would mean publicizing a part of myself that I had been working to keep hidden. Suppose one of my classmates' parents were shareholders with Villa Americana. They would know, and then the whole school would know. I told Dr. Ballard I'd wait and think about it. I'd wait until after Christmas and New Year's anyway, but deep down I didn't really have any intention of going. As I lay there, trying to go to sleep, one thought kept coming back to me again and again. Columbus, Los Angeles, Chicago, Indianapolis. And I wonder, I really, really wonder if there was someone in Seattle. It was the next day that I met the chaplain. 
It was a day before Janice's surgery, and I got an alert on my phone that one of the doctors wanted some Wendy's at the hospital. When I got there, I parked in the garage, and one of the receptionists told me that the doctor would be down for it in just a minute, so I sat and waited. And after a minute, a middle-aged man with graying hair and watery blue eyes sat down on the bench next to me. Smells good, he told me. Thank you, I said. It's for Dr. Mitchell, I think. Dr. Mitchell in the ER? Yeah, I said, I think so. And it was then that I looked over at the man and saw that he wore a clerical collar around his neck. This must have been one of the hospital chaplains, I realized, and this was intriguing to me, because I had never met a religious official before. I didn't know much about religion, to tell you the truth, other than the texts they had passed me at the facility. Children's coloring books about Jesus and Moses and things like that. I know, Dr. Mitchell, said the chaplain. I like him a lot. I worry about him, though. I think he drinks sometimes during his shift. I'd like to talk him out of it. It seems irresponsible. It does, I told the chaplain. We were quiet for a minute. The receptionist looked at me and said, He's running late. Well, actually, I think he fell in the hallway, but he'll be here. Thank you, I said. I was quiet for another second and then turned to the man next to me, and I said, So, you're a minister here? I am, he said. A chaplain. Chaplain Jonathan Shelton. He extended his hand and I shook it. His handshake was actually almost weak. Will Hughes, I said. He nodded. It's good to meet you, Will, he said. Forgive the handshake. I spend a lot of time in prosthetics, so, as you can imagine, one must be careful. I couldn't tell whether he was trying to be funny or not, but... I didn't have much time to think on it, because at that moment a man stumbled into the lobby dressed in bloody medical scrubs. I'm here, he screamed. Where's my burgers? The receptionist said, uh, you forgot to change. Oh no, said the doctor, I'm not done, but I put in my effort enough for a little lunch break. He took the bag from me, and as he did, I could smell the pure smell of bourbon on his breath. Actually, no, it wasn't quite like bourbon at all. It was like he had been drinking from a bottle of disinfectant. And as he took the bag, some of the blood from his gloves spattered onto me and Chaplain Shelton's faces. Wipe that, he warned us. I've been working on a clown all morning. Circus folk. Never know where they've been. On the morning of Janice's surgery, Dan asked me to stay at the house. It was likely, he said, that since Janice would remain at the hospital overnight to recover, he and Jess would be home late, if at all. There was this distant look between the two of them as they walked off to their car that morning. Neither of them seemed to acknowledge each other. I'm not great with social cues or facial nuances, human interaction, and telling when people are sarcastic. British sitcoms go way over my head, but... I could tell whatever was up with Dan and Janice was bothering Jess. I still didn't know what it was, of course, but that day I did find out. It happened like this. I was sitting on the couch, eating the fajitas I had made myself for lunch, and to be quite open, adjusting myself, when I first caught sight of the manila envelope on the little table beside the sofa. It was tucked between a collection of coffee table books, like someone had been trying to hide it. I know that I shouldn't have gone through it, but it was just so damn intriguing, so I took the envelope out and saw that it said, 
Hamish and Cork Law Firm. And so I opened it, took out one of the sheets of paper. It was an invoice. I put it back and took out another piece of paper. And at the top of this one, in big black letters, it said, Divorce Agreement. I put the paper back in the envelope and tucked it away. I really shouldn't have done that. I I should not have done that. But some things can't be undone, of course. So, as you can well imagine, I, I did take the envelope back out and rifle through every document in it. And I did not like what I found. Divorce papers, both signed, Daniel and Janice Bradford, signed but not apparently filed, I tucked them back in the envelope and set it back where I had found it, really regretting having gone through it. I wondered if Jess knew. I wondered what they'd told her. Looking back on it, if I had had parents, I wonder if they would still be together. Maybe they would. Maybe I would be spending Christmas with them and not snooping through the mail of virtual strangers. And maybe we'd have made snowmen. Maybe I would have gotten to an age where I would have started to make the snowmen anatomically correct, and my mother would have gotten mad at me and said, William Lindsay Hughes, that's not appropriate. And of course it wouldn't have been appropriate, not just because of the army of snow penises in the backyard, but also because with my limited knowledge of the female anatomy, none of them would have been diversely endowed. And then we'd go home and drink eggnog and hot chocolate and dad would put bourbon in his and say, don't tell your mother. But later I'd hear her crying in the kitchen and realize... She already knew. Ah, that'd be nice. But some dreams don't come true like that. Later that day, I went back to the hospital to bring food for Dan and Jess. I found Jess asleep in the chair by her mother's bed, but Dan was sitting up reading the Da Vinci Code. He looked up at me and smiled. I said, one pad thai, one som tum. Thank you, he said. How's the book? I asked him. And he sighed and said, it's terrible. It's it's a very, very bad book. But I'll say this, it's nice to not have to think about things for a while. He began unwrapping his order and set the pad tie down on the ground. You know, Will, he said, I really do thank you for all you've done for us the last few days. Oh, I said, it's nothing, Mr. Bradford. You and your family have been so kind to me, and I've... I've been having kind of a, what's the word, a shitstorm crazy time lately, and this has been really nice. Dan smiled and said, well, it's not nothing. I thank you. My wife thanks you. She really does. She likes you a lot. And I can tell you're a good influence on Bug. Bug? Jess, he said, sorry, I call her Bug. She hates that, but... You're a good influence on her. She doesn't act out the way she did in high school. Oh, I said, I'm sure she was fine in high school. Oh, no, she wasn't, said Dan. Junior year, she had a rough patch. You know how it is, hair dye, Velvet Underground albums, and I hate you guys. Oh, I said, let's too. Then she set the shed on fire. Oh, well, we all have our bad days. Yeah, he said, well, listen... I think they're going to kick us out soon, but thank you for checking up on the house. And I, I want you to know you're welcome at that house anytime you need a place. I smiled and said, thank you. The last time someone said that, somebody nearly died. And Dan said, oh, well, thank you anyway. After that, 
I went to the little hospital cafe and got myself dinner. A watery soup and a half sandwich that didn't taste like anything, and I sat there for a minute when I suddenly became aware that someone I recognized was sitting at one of the corner tables, hunched over and poring over a laptop. It was Chaplain Shelton. Recently, as I review these first six documents I've made of my life so far, it occurs to me that in their own way, each of them forms a small case study, and I've come to realize that this is probably something I should lean into. My goal in the coming year is that every day I should attempt to learn something new about the human world that I didn't know before. And so, I decided I would approach this minister and try and pick his brain a bit. I approached Reverend Shelton and asked if I could join him. He said he remembered me, and yes, if I liked. And then he said, Are you dropping off food or visiting someone? Both, actually, I said. I'm out here with a friend from college. Her mom's sick, so I've been helping them out. Oh, that's good of you, said Reverend Shelton. Thank you, I said. And then I said, So you said you're the chaplain here? I am, he said. Been one for six years, ever since I finished school. Finish school. I realized that this chaplain must have been much younger than I'd assumed. Graduate school, he said quickly. I got my master's in theology. Interesting, I said. My college has a religious studies program, but it's been in some hot water lately since the FBI shot one of the emeriti professors in Wyoming over the summer. You may have heard of him. He had a movement called the Happy Slappy Group. They were in all the papers. He grimaced. I did hear about that. It's an awful, awful story. Yeah, I said. I never met him, but I heard his classes were interesting. And then I said, what are you writing? And he smiled, flattered and almost embarrassed. Oh, he said, this is an article I'm writing for a a scholarly journal on religion. They have those? I asked. And then I realized how that question could have come off as offensive. And, by the way, score for me, because I'm normally very bad at picking up on the ways that I cause offense. Sorry, I said. I just... I've never read one. And he laughed a little and said, It's alright. No, they're, they're not very accessible. But then again, what is? What's it on? I asked. The paper? Oh, it's on panentheism in various Protestant traditions. Dear God, that sentence did in my head. Panentheism? I asked. Yes, he said, panentheism. It's like, it's the idea that God, the being and the concept, exists in everything. You know how some people will say that, you know, God is within you. Well, it's the idea that God is essentially present in every part of the known universe, but also outside of and encompassing the universe. Like matter? In a way, like matter if you want, but like matter that transcends matter, if that makes sense. It doesn't, I said. Well, it's complicated anyway, said the chaplain. I guess make of it what you will. That's the good thing about philosophy and religion. No one is really 100% sure how it works. Not even you? I asked. He shrugged and said, I don't think it works that way. If we knew what was happening all around us, we wouldn't be living with faith, we'd be living with facts. And you'd be out of a job, I said. And he smiled a bit and said, yeah, I guess. I don't know, make of it what you will. So, with panentheism, I asked, 
God could be anything, like a chair, or a turtle, or a mango. Let's not worry about it, he said. Although, no, I'm glad for the questions. Most of the time it's Dr. Mitchell and his escapades. And as he said this, our attention was suddenly turned outside the cafeteria and to the hallway, where Dr. Mitchell was running and stumbling, completely stark naked, and singing an unmanageable cover of a Steely Dan song, while two orderlies chased after him with hospital scrubs. I imagine that does get tiring, I said. Dr. Shelton said, Are you religious yourself? Ah, uh, I said, Ah, uh, I, I don't know. I wasn't brought up with any religion, really, but I don't know. To be perfectly honest, Reverend, I'm not sure that I have a soul. And he said, that's an assertion. Well, I said, if you knew about my early life, you'd understand. And because I trusted Chaplain Shelton, I decided that I would tell him. See, the fact is, Reverend, that I was made in a lab. He laughed a little, and so I said, no, it's true. Well, that's all right, he said. What was it, a fertility? No, I said. I mean, I used to be a lake monster. Back in Ohio, they, they called me the Davenport Lake Monster. I was born a human baby, and I don't exactly know when, but not very long after I was born, these scientists turned me into a monster doing this genetic experiment, but then when I was a teenager, they turned me back into a human. He didn't say anything, so I said, I know it's unbelievable, but I, I am a sad little Frankenstein freak. My skin, th this isn't my skin. This is the skin of a much more ample man who died in a hot dog eating contest and whose family signed a release form. And this hair isn't my hair. This is a grafted on scalp of a very well-conditioned biker, which is why it has such volume. Even my fingerprints are based on someone else's, so... Yeah, I don't know. And Reverend Shelton looked at me for a minute and said, Why are you telling me this? Because a few days ago, I found out that I am going to die. And he said, Oh, I'm so sorry. Do you know how long? And I said, If I'm lucky, 60 years. So... Of old age, then. If I'm lucky. Well, that's what most people hope to die of. I didn't think I would die, I told Reverend Shelton. You know, I really wasn't planning on it. So you just sort of hoped to stick around forever, he asked. Doing what? I don't know, I said. Maybe I'd go to an amusement park. Maybe I'd collect interesting-looking leaves and press them. Maybe I'd learn to water ski. And then what, he asked, after you'd done all of that? I'd... I'd get bored, but they'd keep inventing new things, and I'd just do those things until I got bored. But, okay, maybe maybe I didn't think I'd live forever, forever, but, you know, after you've been a science experiment for a good chunk of your life, you kind of have a certain hope that things will turn out all right for you in the end, but... But I could die tomorrow, just like one of those hilarious lion-chewed clowns, and I'm not ready to go. And to be honest, Reverend, I'm angry, because I lost years that I could have had, and I'm not going to get them back, so I, I don't know. Could you just 
tell me something nice, like forgive and turn the other cheek or blessed are the meek or something. And the chaplain looked at me for a minute and said, I want to, but I don't know how much good it would do you. And then his pager beeped. Oh no, he said, they need me. Listen, Will, I'm really sorry. That's all very sad, but if you want spiritual guidance, I'm not the one you should look to. I'm sorry. And then he walked away, and I was just left there alone. I made an attempt at finishing my soup, but ultimately that went nowhere. I just sat there for a little while longer and then went back to my room. Jess and Dan had left for the evening, so it was just Janice. She was sharing the room with a 16-year-old girl named Aubrey, who was slated for a kidney transplant. As I walked in, I heard the sound of the doctors arguing with Aubrey and her parents. I told you, Aubrey was saying, I don't want that one, it's too bumpy! That's how kidneys are supposed to look, Aubrey, said the doctor. She said she doesn't want it, said her dad. Now you respect my baby girl's wishes and throw that one away and don't come back until you find us smooth kidneys. And the doctor was saying, you know, we don't have an unlimited supply of kidneys. And the dad said, oh really? Because I was under the impression that everyone in the world had two of them. And you're telling me you can't find my baby girl one? I ought to file suit. I closed the curtain and sat down next to Janice. Hey, she whispered to me. Hey, I said, you're up late, Mrs. B. Well, it's hard to sleep through this. What did you say to me? Aubrey yelled through the curtain. I said, I hope that new kidney doesn't make your ass look fat, Janice called. And then to me, she said, listen, my daughter left some of her pad thai on the floor. I know this is gross, but could I please have a bite? The food here is terrible. I picked Jess's pad thai container off the floor and handed it to Janice. She took it and ate silently for a minute. Then, when she seemed satisfied, I said, How are you feeling? Oh, she said, You know, living the dream. Yeah, I said, I'm sorry. It's okay, she said. Honestly, I feel good just to be here now, you know? Like, I... Like, I'm honestly surprised to be talking with you now. Really? Yeah, she said, I truly thought I was going to die going under the knife. I don't know why. I just, like, I couldn't imagine any good news. Things have just been so hard for so long. I thought back to the manila envelope, but I didn't say anything. Jess hates me, you know, she said. No, she doesn't, I said. I'm sure she doesn't. Janice set the pad thai container down and said, You're sweet. But she does, Will. She has for years. Did Dan tell you about the shed she set on fire? Yeah, I said, he did. She did that, Janice said, after I told Dan that I wasn't going to keep going to marriage counseling. I didn't know what to say just then, so... What I said was, oh, like an idiot, oh. She put her hand on mine, and I held hers for a bit. Her grip was weak and cold, but I held the hand. I don't know exactly how long for. Long enough that I thought she had gone to sleep, but then when I looked back at her, I saw that her eyes were wide open and she was staring at me. And I said, 
Can I ask you something? Yeah, she said. After you got your diagnosis, what did you do? She closed her eyes and leaned back against the pillow and said, I was on my way to work when the doctor called. He told me what the results were. And I just remember I kind of froze up, even though, in a way, I guess I was expecting it. I'm a cynic, you know, and then I hear this honking behind me, and I realize that I'm stopped at a green light, so I go through. Only, it's not a green light anymore. It's a yellow light, and then when I run through, it's a red light, so, of course, I almost get hit, and I pull into a Waffle House parking lot, because... You know, they don't close for anything. And I just sit there. And I remember thinking, God, I wish that car had hit me. She reached back over for the pad tie container and shoveled the last bit of it into her mouth. And then, she said, I remember thinking, I should call my husband. But I couldn't imagine beginning that call, you know? And I realized that my doctor was still on the line and he wanted me to come in and talk about surgery. And I didn't want Dan to come with me because I thought he'd say something stupid or intrusive or try way too fucking hard to be funny. And so I had to call my boss and tell her that I needed a sick day, which, of course, she got pissy over because we had a big meeting. So great, some deep shit I'm in, right? And I get to my doctor's and I find out that now he's talking to another doctor because he had spilled scalding hot coffee all over his crotch. So I have to wait two hours while they ice his member. And I'm sitting there thinking, I could call my husband. I could call anyone. I should call someone. But I didn't. It was just me and this nurse and this sick pooey kid with the mumps yelling about Highlights magazine. And when my doctor finally does see me, we go over everything. And I just remember thinking, God, I wish Dan was here. And I wish he'd say something stupid or intrusive or just try way too hard to be funny so that I could tell him, Dan, stop. But... Instead, it was me. And I didn't even call him after. I just went into work. And I did a half day. She was getting sauce all over her mouth, so I handed her a napkin. Thank you, she said and wiped her mouth. This is really good, even left over. I wouldn't know, I said. She offered me the few remaining noodles that were pooled to the side of the container, and I took them just to get the taste of hospital food out of my mouth. Janice said, So finally, I called Dan at the grocery store. I had stopped to get a rotisserie chicken for dinner, and I just tried to be cavalier about it, and I was like, Hey, babe, got a call from the doctor. And I wasn't cavalier, actually, and Dan... We started yelling right there. I mean, I scared a child because I was arguing so loud. And then I ended up crying into my bag of rotisserie chicken until this worker comes over and is like, you're going to have to pay for that. You're going to have to pay for that. And in all that time, in all that time, I just 
wished someone had been there. And she gripped my hand tighter, and I let her. She cried for a bit, and then stopped. And then she said she was going to try and rest, so I let her sleep. And then I went back outside. It had started to snow pretty heavily, and my Vespa was practically covered. I dusted it off and drove back to the apartment. The next morning, I woke up late and lazy and just a little hungover. My neighbor is making homemade wine in his kitchen by fermenting an assortment of fruit, and last night, I drank a glass and a half of his rotten compost wine before eventually the smell knocked me unconscious. I woke up in the morning to find that the fumes coming off of my glass had killed all of the bugs in my apartment, which is probably not a good sign. The snow had temporarily stopped but the roads were slick with ice, too slick to drive for any great length, so I went back to the hospital. I didn't know what I was looking for exactly, but I realized it the minute I walked through the door. I was looking for Chaplain Shelton, and I found him. He was back in the cafeteria. He looked up when he saw me and actually looked a little relieved. I thought you might come by, he said. I'm sorry about leaving last night as I did, but there was a situation in the emergency room. Oh, I said, I'm sorry. Is everything all right? No, he said, and looked down. For a minute we were silent, and it seemed like he wouldn't tell me, and that was fine. But then he finally said, it was a young man. About your age, maybe a few years older. His fiancée was with him. She was pregnant, I think, just a little, and I... They said that he had been cleaning the apartment, and somehow a TV had fallen on him. Is he okay? One of his lungs collapsed, said the chaplain. He might not make it through the day. They might be able to save him, of course, but I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but his fiancée was there, and she was understandably distraught, and then his parents came, and you can probably imagine the scene. And even though I'd never had parents, I could. And they asked me, and they asked me to pray with them, and I, you know, my job is, is, is to comfort. Everyone thinks that a hospital chaplain is there to convert people, but it's not. It's to comfort, and they needed comfort, but while we were praying, I just kept thinking, what comfort will they have if he slips away in the night? And it felt like I was lying, to be honest. I'm sorry, I said. It's not the first time, he said. I remember a few years ago, a man asked to see me, and his son was, well, not just sick, but at the end his nine-year-old son. The boy had a brain tumor. I could feel something sick turning in my stomach. Imagine a nine-year-old boy with a brain tumor, old enough to know what's happening to him, but not to understand. Old enough to know what's being taken from him, but not even old enough to be in an adult hospital bed, still young enough that the walls of the room he was going to die in had painted on animals and clowns. So, they called you in to do what? Last rites? And he almost smiled and said, well, that's the Catholics. 
you'd need Father Morrison for that. No, uh, they, they wanted me to say something. I think they wanted me to tell them that this was part of a bigger plan. And all I could think of to say was, he's the god of love. I don't know what I meant by that, but I don't think I could think of anything else to say, really. I mean, what can you say? And what good is that, the god of love, to someone whose child has a brain tumor? I don't know, I said. And he said, I don't either. Anyway, he didn't make it through the week. And I remember I was there for a lot of it. He would wake up and sleep in these fits and starts. And when he went dark for the last time, I remember he reached out to me. And when I took his hand, it felt like he was reaching for something that wasn't there. Like he was reaching and waiting for something and it never came. We were silent for a long time. I kept waiting for something to come in and cut this tension, this horrible, horrible silence between us, but nothing came. And finally he said, you know, chaplains aren't there just for the bad times. We're there for the good. We're, we're supposed to be for, for anyone, you know, and we have different ones at this hospital, Protestant and Catholic, Muslim and Jewish and... You know, I, I, I've seen people having the worst day of their life, the, the last day of their life, and sometimes the best day of their life. I've seen babies being born and heart transplants, but I don't know. Sometimes I, I, I really wonder what I'm doing here because sometimes I feel like I can't answer the questions that people ask me, and I worry the answers I give aren't going to be enough. Why did you get into this work, then? I don't know anymore, he said. Because it's, it's where I wanted to be. It's where I chose to be, over a classroom or the seminary or the church. This, this is what I wanted to do. And I'm scared of losing my passion for it. And if that happens, I don't know where else I'll be, because I don't... I don't know... I care for this work, and I, I watch it crumble. You know, you watch these extremist groups pervert what you believe in, or you watch sex scandals, you watch pastors sell out and go on to televangelist shows. Like, the other night, me and Father Morrison and Rabbi Heyman walked into a bar. And then what happened, I asked. And all three of us just sat there because we were all so burned out. I used to talk to other people here. But I'm worried they're all getting burned out. Maybe I should give it up and go and work for the Jim Jarmingas Teleministry. They don't do anything, but all their pastors get free jets. And I replied, The winter has grown too white For any light to shine inside To know your mind It's all down to you And I can't claim To know your tale What made you walk 
this way at all I remember what you told me still When you said God was a mango God is a mango, sha-la-la-la-la-la How did it happen? You keep on saying The winter has grown too wide For any light to shine inside And I can't claim to know your mind And it's all down to you God is a mango, sha-la-la-la-la-la And I don't know why I care God is a mango, sha-la-la-la-la And he said, well, that's a nice enough thought. You could probably go on and be a televangelist and make millions with an act like that, but I don't think it's enough for me. Well, I said, I'm sorry then. It's not your fault, he said. You're not trained for this. You don't know anything about religion, even. You, you never had to repair my faith or anyone else's, so don't take it on yourself. How often had I heard that before? You don't have to fish that bagel out of the toaster. It's not on you. Put the fork away. Don't take out that man's liver. You don't have to fix his drinking problem. You don't have to help that cult leader and his followers sneak away with a school-owned van to Wyoming. Don't take it on yourself. But every time I had, and every time it had gone badly for me, and yet I kept doing it, because, like a desperate restaurant owner on a Food Network reality show, I cannot be taught and flat-out refuse to learn from my mistakes. I went back to Janice's room, but found that she was asleep, while through the curtain I could hear a whisper-shouted argument between a doctor and the neighboring girl's mother about how the new kidney they had found for her was too pointy. I went back outside and got on my scooter, as I drove through the city, I remembered for the first time that that day was actually December 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve. Dr. Ballard tells me that only insufferable people call it that, but anyway. Still, you know, as I drove through the streets, I was shocked by just how decked out the city was. Some kids were building snowmen, others, more Dickensian-style children on crutches, had formed a small gang and were brutalizing an old man for money. Their little crutches formed such fashionable and useful clubs. And when I reached Jess's house, the door was unlocked. 
though I think that was because they had forgotten to relock it. I was late getting there, and I think neither of them had been expecting me to show, but show up I did, right in the middle of something I really should not have seen. From outside the house, I could actually hear the sounds of muffled shouting, but when I opened the door, I heard Jess yelling, So just tell her you want it to be over! And Dan was saying, It's not that simple, Jessica! And Jess said, Oh, bullshit! You were fine to do it a month ago! And that was when they noticed me standing in the hallway, watching them. They had been making breakfast, sort of, and Dan was wearing an apron with bacon and eggs stitched onto it. He hid the spatula behind his back like he'd been brandishing a knife. Oh, hi! And Jess peered over at me and said, Oh, shit! Hi, Will! How's it going? Oh, I said, Do you know, what happened in here? You two fighting or something? And they were both silent, and I said, Oh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? And Jess said, I'm going to go upstairs. You two have fun. And then, pushing past me, Jess walked up the stairs and shut her bedroom door. Her father sighed and said, You want a cup of coffee? I did. I followed Dan into the kitchen and let him pour me some coffee. Milk? Yeah, sure. He poured the milk until it swirled in the coffee and said, How is she? Right now, I said, she seems pretty angry. Oh, your wife. No, she's fine. She was asleep the last time I was over there. Dan nodded. Good. They think it'll be fine if she comes home today. I don't know what we'll do then, but you may not want to be here on Christmas, Will. I'm just going to warn you, some very ugly conversations are going to be had. Before I could ask what he meant, he said, I know you found the paper, Will. I didn't say anything. It's okay, he said. Jess told me you're... Boundary challenged, I should have known better than to leave divorce papers out where guests could see them, but yeah, Jess found it this morning. She didn't know. We were going to sit her down this break, maybe after New Year's, and just have a talk with her about it, see where her head was, try and get her where ours were. Janice and I had been having some problems for a number of years, and we've really tried to fix them, Will, but... I don't know. Sometimes you have to admit that it's over. Of course, I think Jess blames me for it. I think your wife thinks that she blames her, I said. I'm not sure how I knew that, but as it came out of my mouth, I knew that I believed it. Dan sighed. I hope you never have children, Will, he said. I know that's terrible, but I really do mean it. Not because you won't love them, you will, but... You can break your back trying not to disappoint them, and it's still not enough. And at the end of the day, if your kid storms off and says they hate you, nine times out of ten, they have a right to. But with Jess, it's extra hard, because there you have a kid who's smart and defiant and does things how she wants, and always has, and I just... I wish she knew that I was still on her side. I bet she does, I told Dan. Dan sighed. No, she doesn't. She can't know. Anyway, Janice and I were going to split. We were talking about it for a while, and then she got sick, and I just... How can I leave her? How can I leave her when I know she's sick, and I know I still love her? And I said, have you told her that? And Dan said, what have you been up to this week? 
And I said, mostly nothing, but can I ask you a question? You believe in God, Mr. B? And he thought for a minute and said, Yeah, maybe, for the easy peace of mind. I didn't ask what that meant. And we sat there for a minute more, just drinking coffee, and then I went up to Jess's room and knocked on the door, and she called, Go away! And I was quiet for a minute more, and I called back, Okay, but can I come in anyway? And she said, Yeah, fine. I went in. She was sitting on the bed eating Oreos and absently flipping through the pages of a textbook for a class that she was no longer enrolled in. What are you doing? I asked. Trying to have a moment? She said. What does it look like? I thought you almost failed that class. Jess threw the book against the wall and just kind of sank into the bed, where she let out a long, low moaning sound, almost like a moan. I'm so tired, she said. I am just so, so tired. I know, I said, and I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I don't want you to tell me anything, she said. I just... Why are you here, Will? How are you in the middle of this? This is supposed to be the worst thing that ever happened to me, and I still feel like it's actually happening to you. I'm sorry, I said. I'm trying to stay out of your way, Jess. I've mostly been doing my own little side project this week. There's this chaplain at the hospital, and he's having this vague sadness, so I'm, I'm sorry, she said, but I do not care. Which was fair, I guess. You don't always have to help people, you know, she said. And, and don't say you don't, Will, because you you do. We both know you do. It's like a sickness with you, and I, I don't get what it is. I guess deep down, I wasn't quite sure what it was either. All I could think of and all I told Jess was that the thing she had said the other day had really shaken me, the thing about dying. Deep down, I think a part of me, of course, had always known that I wasn't going to live forever, but to have it confirmed in that one moment was terrifying. I didn't tell her about the lab, of course, or the conference in Texas that Dr. Ballard wanted me to go to. I didn't tell her about Dr. Ballard. All I said when she finally pressured me was that I didn't have a childhood, and I didn't have a family. And that was all I said. She didn't ask me to explain. She drew her own conclusions, and that was fine with me. And after that, we were quiet for a while. And then she said, I just wish they had told me that they were struggling again. I think they wanted to, I said. Yeah, well, I know I probably shouldn't be mad at them. I do, but... I am. I am angry. It's like all my life, it's like we've never been on the same team. And I always feel like they're keeping something from me. Well, Jess, they may not trust you because you keep setting things on fire. Oh, that one time. It's not like that. It's, it's like, I don't know. It's like we're always playing this weird game of telephone. And it just feels like this disconnect. I just wish I understood them or... They understood me. Anyway, why do you care so much about a chaplain? I was about to say I didn't know when it dawned on me that that would actually be a lie. I did know. That chaplain had been the second person in my life who I'd ever opened up to about the lab. I couldn't to Jess. I couldn't to Noah. They'd never believe me, and I knew that it wasn't safe to tell friends. 
But just a few days ago, I'd opened up to a virtual stranger, and... I mean, I wasn't sure that he believed me. He probably didn't. One day, I decided, I would tell Jess everything. Jess and Noah. I would need to decide what order that would be in, but... I had never had a childhood. The idea kept rattling in my head. I had watched Jess when I said that to see how she would react, but she hadn't. I thought about that dying boy in Chaplain Shelton's story. How old would he have been now, I wondered. Maybe just a few years younger than me. And alive and well and preparing for a future which he had every reason to suspect was purely wide open. Jess said to me, Anyway, I hope you figure it out. Personally, I don't have much of a dog in the fight, but God does seem like a nice idea, just for the easy peace of mind. And I said, you know what's funny? That's exactly what your dad told me. When I got back to the hospital, I found Chaplain Shelton sitting in his usual spot in the cafe, working at his laptop. He didn't say anything when I sat down, so I just said, Working on your article? No, actually, he said. I'm looking to buy a lighthouse off the coast of Maine. I might move there and make little driftwood sculptures. Oh, I said. You're being sarcastic at me. No, he said, I'm not. He closed the laptop and then stood. I'm sorry, I can't stay. They paged me a minute ago. I is it the guy with the lung? I asked. Yes, actually, he said. They're in the middle of surgery right now. It could save his life if it's successful. That's amazing, I said. Th that's wonderful. Or he could die, said the chaplain. But I suppose we're hoping for the best, so I need to decide what I'm going to say. What do you think you'll say? I asked. Probably something to the effect of don't get your hopes up. And then he said toodaloo and turned to leave. I followed him out for a minute, calling after him, Reverend, wait! What? he asked. Well, just, I don't think you should do that. I think maybe, I know you're in a hard spot right now, but that family really needs some hope. And Chaplain Shelton said, Well, no offense, but do you even believe in any of this? I, I don't know. Admittedly, I don't know much about it. I, I don't know much about the Bible or any religious text for that matter, but you do. He kept walking, so I kept following him. And if you're faltering, I said, there, there's always people you can believe in. Well, people are extremely flawed creatures, said Reverend Shelton. Not much point in believing in them. Maybe they are, I said, but but that's why they need you. You, you, you just please listen, please, for one minute. He stopped for a second. Think about those clowns, I said. Those clowns that came in here the other day, the ones that were chewed apart and mauled by a lion. Oh, sure, it may be a horrendous, terrible, stomach-churning story, but it didn't happen to us, and therefore we can use it as an uplifting example. Those clowns may have died in horrible agony, but they had each other, and I'll bet they wouldn't have traded that for anything. And he said, that's a hard pass, Will. He started walking again, and I kept after him, and I said, well, you listened to me a few days ago when I told you about the thing that had happened to me as a kid, and, and I know that story sounded crazy, 
and probably like a joke, but you stayed and you listened to me. And I, I know you didn't believe it, but it's true, Reverend, that story I told you. But there's more of it that I didn't. After it happened, after, after they turned me back into a person, they kept me in a lab for months, for, for years practically, and, and when they released me, they didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was excited, but I was terrified, and I'm terrible in public. I have no social skills. I can't read other people. I don't get sarcasm, but, but I met these people. Jess, my friend that I'm here with, and my buddy Noah, who you don't know and probably will never meet, which is to say nothing of the wonderful network of professors and other friends whom I never talk about on this podcast, like my friend Ethan, who swallowed his twin in the womb and has an extra foot sticking out of his foot, or my friend Colin, whose mother tried to eat him. What does that mean? asked the chaplain. I don't know, I said. Probably she tried to eat her son like a suckling piglet at barbecue, but it's not my place to judge because they're not perfect. Ethan knocked over someone's mailbox, and Colin is an alcoholic. But they're there for me. All these people are here for me, and I think you're here because you know it's the right place to be. Because you probably believe that there is some higher power at work in all this, and hopefully it's a benevolent one, but also because it's like you said, man, you're here for them. It's not mandatory that you come around, is it? No, he said. Well then, I, I think they must ask you, because it does them good. He stopped for a second. You may be right, he said. It is for them. We turned the corner and saw that we were only a few doors down from the room we needed to be in. However, before we could open the door, it was open for us as Dr. Mitchell stepped out, clearly in some sort of a frenzy. Don't you understand? Dr. Mitchell was shouting. I've come to the conclusion that it's not collapsed lungs at all. It's a rare respiratory condition called nasal arachnosis. This lad's sinuses are full of spiders. We must remove his sinuses. And then, from his pocket, he took out a large bottle of pills, opened it, and popped a few into his mouth. Then he said, Super Doctor Away! and ran down the hall. We watched him go. And then Chaplain Shelton told me that maybe I was right. He should stick around. If only to try and subvert the reign of terror that would otherwise descend upon the hospital. In the end, I don't know much about faith. I don't know what compels people to devote themselves to it. I don't know what exactly pulls the thread that makes them break away. I don't know a lot of things when you get right down to it. Like, for instance, I don't know what Chaplain Shelton said to that young man's family as I peered in through the door. Only that it made them smile. And I didn't know what to say to Jess when, arriving at the hospital, she asked me what I thought she should say to her mother on the drive home. I don't think they said much of anything, only that when they greeted each other, there was this level of peace between the two of them that wasn't there before. 
One thing I do know uh, is that that horrible teenage girl, Aubrey, that had been in the bed next to Janice, did receive her new kidney. And as such, she became the first human being with three medically inserted kidneys, which meant that she could now try out for the reality show Drunk in Seattle, which was her lifelong dream. The other thing I know is that I have gone through a tremendous lot in my life without actually doing much living, but I also know that I've been lucky. I made it further than I think anyone thought I'd made it, and now I have a choice. I could either wither and whine like that teenager, or I could face the world with others like me, just like those lucky dead clowns. And so I know this too. Just like an indie filmmaker in 1996, I am going to have to go to Austin, Texas. Dryland was created, written, and performed by Adam Frost Venrick, with original music by Mr. Frost Venrick, and produced by Mr. Frost Venrick and the Z Theater Company. Today's original song was called Mango Song. Thank you for listening, and as always, tune in next time for more Dryland. <laughs>